to 1 Peter 3. And also in the back of your hymnals to the Westminster Confession of Faith, page 936. First Peter 3. And then we'll look at the back of the Westminster Confession of Faith, page 930, 936. This is the chapter on um, of the sacraments, chapter 27. Let's first read the word of the Lord, 1 Peter 3, starting in, um, starting in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the saints now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And then, look in the Confession of Faith, chapter 27, section 2 and 3. Section 2 says, There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. Neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with a a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, help us to understand this rather difficult portion of Scripture, but also um, the wonderful blessings of how we receive grace through your sacraments. Help us to understand and to believe and to rejoice in the grace that you have given us through Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, I've seen some books recently, and one of them is is called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Well, maybe someone should write The Hard Sayings of Peter, because there are some hard sayings here, aren't there? And it's not just that. There are some difficult passages in Scripture, and the plethora of interpretations of it is pretty widespread. But this is a passage that I think that even though it's, it's debated among some, I think we can come to a clear understanding of this particular passage. And one key thing is understanding the language in the Westminster Confession of Faith that instructs us on what this passage here is doing. 
Section 2 is, again, um, the section we'll, we'll look at first. It says, There is, in every sacrament, a spiritual relation or a, a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Um, okay, so the thing signified and the sign. Okay, so here we have the sign is the bread and the thing signified is Christ's body or the thing which is the sign is the, is the wine but the thing that it signifies or it represents is the blood, the true blood of Christ. That's what it's talking about in that, in that section 2. So when we read this passage, 1 Peter 3.20, it's one of the best examples, I believe, of um, section 2, and it's one that our booklet, if you have the Westminster Confession of Faith um, bound with the Scripture proof texts, this is one of the proof texts that they use here. 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 20, We'll look at the middle, the middle of uh, verse 20 there in your outline. It says, During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that baptism now saves you. Baptism now saves you. So before explaining this passage, I want to read to you an outstanding, a most outstanding um, writing of Dr. Kistemacher regarding the relationship between the flood, the ark, and baptism. I, I think it's truly delightful. I, I don't, and this is actually the first time I've, I've heard of uh, the, this interesting comparison. It says, the text allows for a resemblance between the flood and baptism. That is, as the flood waters cleanse the earth of man's wickedness. So the water of baptism indicates man's cleansing from sin. As the flood separated Noah and his family from the wicked world of their day, so baptism separates believers from the evil world of our day. Baptism, then, is the counterpart of the flood. I think it's amazing. So, if someone... If someone asked me, though, and they, if they just asked me outright, and they said, baptism now saves you, what in the world does that mean? Because I, I don't see how that can be true. I would probably first start off by saying, well, the phrase, baptism now saves you, must be read along with the rest of the verse. Let's read the rest of the verse there, in verse 21 and following. It says, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt, from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God. Peter goes on to say that you're not saved by the removal of dirt from the flesh when water is used. You're not saved by the washing of water, which removes the filth, right? That's what he's saying. So he, in one sense, he says baptism now saves you, but then he says, it's not by that water that washes away the filth. But he goes on to say, what is necessary to save you is an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's another way of saying saving faith. If you have a good conscience concerning who Christ is and a belief in Christ, that's, a, you could say, saving faith, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God. So we're not saved by the washing with water. We're saved by 
saving faith in Christ who has been resurrected and now is seated at the right hand of, of the Father. Now, if someone else, maybe someone in, the, in Presbyterianism who loves the confession of faith, and they said, well, what does it mean when, when we read this verse, baptism now saves you? One of the answers I would give to explain that complex statement is what it says in section 2. Again, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass, the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So I would, I would say that that's, this passage is an example of that. Now, Dr. Kistemacher then, again, wrote this. Peter tells the readers of this epistle, Baptism now saves you. What precisely does that mean? Does baptism save a person? Before we go on to answer these questions, let us examine Scripture, which teaches in the Old and in the New Testaments that sins are washed away. For example, look at these passages. David prays, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 51. God says to Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all the impurities and from your idols. That's in Ezekiel 36. Ananias instructs Paul, Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. Acts 22.16 Paul writes, God saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3. Baptism, he goes on to say, is a symbol for cleansing the believer from sin. But Scripture does not teach that baptismal water saves a person. Rather, a believer is saved by Christ's atoning death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, Romans 6, 4. Baptism is a symbol of the shed blood of Christ that cleanses the believer from sin. Good writing there, very balanced. So another example of section two of this, um, the, the sign and the thing signified is found in 1 Corinthians 10. I want us to turn there. Keep, uh, we don't have to, I don't think we're going to go back to Peter there, but let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 16. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? So this, the language there in verses 16 and 17 talks about the sacraments, but what it really is, it symbolizes something far greater accomplished through Christ. The cup of blessing is the sharing in the blood of Christ. 
the body uh, of Christ that we share in his body as well. And I think this is talking again about a spiritual reality of what we have in Christ symbolized in these sacraments. And, but it's not just symbolized, because we know that when taken by faith, the sacraments, as we partake by faith, God gives us true, real grace. It's not just only a memorial, but that's one of the truths of what happens. Let's uh, look at section 3. It goes on to say, The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. Neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution which contains together with a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. Now, when I was in seminary, there was a debate about whether we should use leavened bread or unleavened bread. Well, one of the arguments for using unleavened bread is because if, if they were having a Passover meal, and Jesus was having a Passover meal, and the Passover meal is then is, sub, is taken over, you could say, by the Lord's Supper, what did they serve at Passover? It wasn't leavened bread, it was unleavened bread. And one of the professors even made a recipe of unleavened bread using honey and butter and whole wheat. It's pretty delicious. But then one of the other professors argued, well, according to Jewish law, honey is considered a leavening because it has, I guess it has some leavening properties to it. So, you know, but then the other thing goes on is, well, what about the, what about the uh, wine and grape juice? Well, according to the words of institution, wouldn't it, be more, wouldn't it be proper for us to only use wine, some would argue? Because grape juice didn't exist. Welch's didn't develop a process of pasteurization to make grape juice in the first place. So you could argue all these different things. But here, here's the thing. What the answer that we need to go by is what's here in the confession. The grace which is exhibited by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. Yeah, so you could say bread is bread. And the fruit of the vine is still fruit of the vine, whether it's grape juice or wine, right? And so I, I think God doesn't want us to be so, uh, so overly concerned regarding this matter. Again, the grace given is not dependent on ha us having the right formulation of the exact perfect thing. Oh, you have honey in that. It, it, it can't be right or lawful. That would be something I think would be a little bit extreme. A classic example of why Section 3 here is very important to us is what if you had a minister who administered your baptism? He was the one who baptized you. And then later on you find out he denies the faith and dies in unbelief. Does his baptism then become invalid because he was a total unbeliever? Well, the, the answer again is found in the confession. Neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. And I'm inserting some words here. But, you could say, the efficacy of a sacrament depends upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution. So, what, what's words of institution? 
Anytime you, you read that, words of institution or passages where Christ or the apostles gave instruction about the command to carry out the sacrament or a command on how to do it or instruction on how to apply it or how to do it in a way to glorify God. Those are considered words of institution. So you could say it, let's abbreviate it even further. The efficacy of a sacrament depends upon the work of the Spirit and the Word of God. The efficacy, or it being effectual to you to receive grace, it's not dependent on a person. It's not dependent upon having the exact right, perfect element. It's dependent upon the work of the Spirit and the Word of God, in particular, the Word of institutions, or you could say our faith and belief in the Word of God, of who Jesus is and what He's done for us especially. One of the most interesting cases I've seen of a pastor that ended up proving to be someone um, that no one expected was we met some evangelical Russian Christians who moved out of Russia to South Carolina when we were in seminary. And they had this little lake and we were swimming and we met them and they were a very nice a young couple with a, with a baby, I believe it was. And uh, they told us the story of how they had a KGB agent who was impersonating a preacher. So they, they put in a KGB agent as their pastor to keep an eye on this congregation. Well, they came to saving faith in Christ through the preaching of the KGB agent. And later on, it, came found, it was found out that he was a KGB agent and the whole church fell apart. But these dear, this dear brother and sister, they still trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus. And you could say if they were baptized by the KGB agent, well, I guess maybe in some ways you could argue that he wasn't lawfully ordained, but they came to faith by someone who had the wrong motives, even in his preaching, and you could say maybe initially. Now, did the man come to saving faith and start believing what he was preaching? I don't know. God knows. It's just a, an amazing story. Scripture gives us another case that's similar to this. Let's look at First Peter. I mean, sorry, Philippians one, not First Peter. Philippians one. Peter, uh, actually Paul. I'm sorry. Paul in Philippians 1, starting verse 12, says this. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the, the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, 
and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So think about that. Someone's preaching the gospel, not out of a sincere heart, but they're trying to do it because they want to get at somebody else. They want to, they want to cause ill to, to this man Paul who's in prison. So they, their motives are all warped. So obviously God's not going to use that kind of preaching from somebody with a wrong motive. Well, what does Paul say? Praise God that the gospel's preached. So the same thing goes. Someone maybe who was administering the sacraments without the right heart, without the right intention, um, maybe he's doing it out of, out of selfishness or envy or strife of some sort. Maybe he's doing it to get at, back at somebody. But again, the confession says, the efficacy of a sacrament dependeth does not depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. But that efficacy of the sacrament is dependent upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution. It's dependent upon God's word, God's promises, God's Spirit. That's what makes our partaking of the sacrament effectual for us. Now, please get, don't take this the wrong way. Philippians 1 doesn't negate what Scripture says elsewhere about us being careful regarding elders, even deacons, teaching elders, ruling elders, which you could say ruling elders is the same thing as a gospel. I mean, uh, teaching elders is the same thing as a, go- as a gospel minister. We still have to be careful about getting men with the right motives and the right heart who want to preach the gospel with a sincere faith who are upright in character, again, sincere in heart. And the, the key passages for that would be in Titus and First uh, Timothy 3. But here's a case where obviously that wasn't done. Some people came in and, and they had the wrong motive and they weren't sincere, but they were still preaching. And God still blessed his use of the means of grace even through somebody without a sincere heart. Um, you could say it this way, God can use a, a crooked stick to accomplish the salvation of those whom he wishes to save. I don't like that phrase, a God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. Well, God can use even a crooked person to bring someone to, to salvation. And as long as that word is preached, and that word especially is united by faith on those who upon those who hear. Now think about us. Maybe some of us, um, we, you know, we might question, well, well, the people who shared the gospel with me in the first place, maybe I'm not too sure about them or what kind of, what kind of church it was. Or, but if we've heard and received the gospel, it doesn't matter if it was the proper, exact, precise, reformed church. If we received and heard and believed the gospel... That's God's use of his holy word to bring us to a saving knowledge and growth in grace. Let's pray together. Our blessed Lord, we, we thank you for your holy sacraments. We thank you for the blessed Lord Jesus. We thank you for the sacrament of baptism, which reminds us of the washing of, by the blood of Christ we thank you of that holy sacrament that shows that we are separate from the world, 
just as you separated uh, Noah and his family from the rest of the world that was condemned. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Supper. Thank you for allowing us to celebrate that blessed Lord's Supper this morning. And we pray more and more that you would help us to partake in such a way by faith. And that by faith we would feed upon the blessed Lord Jesus. That we would receive him. That he would be that true bread and true sustenance for our lives. Help us in these things. Help us to understand and believe and to to give you the honor and the glory. For we ask all these things in the blessed name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.